0: Welcome to As a Woman, Fertility Hormones and Beyond. I'm your host, Dr. Natalie Crawford, and I am a board-certified OBGYN and fertility physician and also co-founder of Fora Fertility in Austin, Texas. With the goal of educating and empowering women, each week on this podcast, I discuss health and fertility and how they relate to your true self. Become a part of the community of collaboration that amplifies others as a woman. I hope you enjoy the episode. Hi, friends. Welcome back to As a Woman. I'm your host, Dr. Natalie Crawford, and this is the first episode that I'm recording after the overturning of Roe v. Wade. And so that's the news. Fertility in the news this week is going to be talking about what it means to be living in an era post-Roe. What does it mean if you don't want to be pregnant? What does it mean if you're trying to be pregnant? What does it mean if you are pregnant or if you miscarry or you have a pregnancy complication? And what does it mean if you need an abortion or if you want to undergo assisted reproductive technology, which is ART like IVF? This is a really complicated topic. We have to remember that the world has completely changed. So I'm going to go over things like miscarriages, ectopics, period cycle apps, IVF, and more. So let's just dive on in. First thing to understand is that Roe v. Wade was passed almost 50 years ago. So for those of us Who are living in a modern society, this is the only existence we have known. Many of us have taken advantage of some of the protections that Rogue gives us. And so some of the things that we are highly concerned about is going to be management of pregnancies and contraception access. So let's talk about contraception for a moment. So we can start there. So contraception is where you can use birth control so that you can control if you want to become pregnant or not. So if you are highly opposed to abortion, if you do not believe that something and you would like to see as part of your personal beliefs, there being less abortions overall, I think that's fine. That's definitely not a bad thing to want there to be fewer abortions. The number one most effective way to do this is by having good sexual education and two, access to reliable contraceptive methods. Did you know that contraception has not always been a right? And when it was first introduced as a right, it was only afforded to married couples. So the first bill that passed saying that you could utilize contraception or you could not prohibit somebody from having access to contraception, it only did so if you were married. And that was in the 1960s. And it wasn't until 10 years later in the 1970s where your rights to contraception existed regardless of your relationship status. Isn't that really wild and crazy to think about? Because when I think about my life, the ability to have reliable and effective contraception really allowed me to become a doctor. It allowed me to get through college and medical school to purposefully not have kids at a time where I might have to get off this career path because becoming a physician, It's a really long road and it's really hard. And there's times that I don't know that I could have done it had I had a child or been pregnant. So I didn't have to worry about that because I had access to contraception. I took the combined birth control pill for many, many years. And after I had my two kids, even when I was married and I was ending fellowship and starting my new job, I had an IUD because we did not want to add to our family. We were very happy with where we were. And so I personally have benefited. Extensively from being able to have contraception. And it was a right that I never once in my life have considered that it could be taken away. It's something that was just a constant that if you need contraception, you want birth control, access to methods to not get pregnant, those are something that you can do. You can see a doctor, talk about your choices, and get reliable contraception. And based on the opinion, where Roe v. Wade was overturned, uh, what we saw was that there's other personal rights that are going to be up on the table. They were very clearly laid out by the current Supreme Court about what is going to come next. And contraception, both for married and those who are unmarried, clearly named. So this is something that is really at risk for us. And because once Roe has been overturned, now that it's overturned, I should say, there was no more precedent. So the Supreme Court has lived under this idea that unless it's an extreme circumstance, they're one being, they uphold the laws that prior courts have deemed to be rights of this country. And so to go back on that precedent and say, no, those guys 50 years ago were wrong and we have it right, that's huge. And now it opens the door where many other personal rights can also be challenged. So number one, contraception is something that's up on the table at risk. Important for you to know, contraception helps people have families that they want. It also treats many medical conditions. Birth control pills specifically, they can be used to treat ovarian cysts, polycystic ovarian syndrome, endometriosis, acne, can be used to treat mental health disorders like depression, PMS, seizures associated with your cycle, and more. So the birth control pill has a lot of uses. We also use hormonal contraception for IVF cycles. So to get things prepared, to arrange timing, control things, to set a good stage. So we use contraceptive pills for so much more than just contraception. And so if suddenly contraception is no longer allowed, that is a really big thing. One thing you should do is consider getting contraception a reliable form. So long-acting contraception An IUD is a great example. They can last five to 10 years, depending on the type. You don't have to remember to take a pill and they are highly effective. You can also talk about the ring. There's the birth control pill. There's implants that can go in your arm. There is the patch. There's a lot of different options for you. The number one thing is that condoms are not the most reliable form. They're better than nothing. The Pallotta calendar methods are not the most reliable forms. They're better than nothing. But in an era where you really want to control your reproductive future and you no longer have access potentially to other types of contraception, getting a reliable form of contraception, considering getting a long-acting contraception. And if you're done having your family, you could always consider tubal sterilization where your fallopian tubes are removed. That doesn't mean you can't get pregnant in the future but it does mean you can't get pregnant without having IVF or we take your eggs out of the body. So this also will mean that if that happens, access to emergency contraception like plan B will also become more difficult. Plan B is a high dose of progesterone pill. It is usually two different pills that you take. There's a few different versions, but essentially emergency contraception works by giving you a high dose of progesterone interfering with ovulation. It secondarily works by making the lining of the uterus less hospitable for an embryo. All of that said, Plan B is not an abortion medication. No emergency contraception is. Another form of emergency contraception is a copper IUD. It's actually a great form. So if you have unprotected sex and you need contraception and you want long-acting, then you could get a copper IUD placed. And that would be both emergency contraception and long-acting contraception. But no matter what, something important to consider is that you can still get Plan B and emergency contraception right now that might go off the table in the future. And so I would strongly recommend that you get some, you can pick it up at your pharmacy and you have that in case you find yourself in a situation where you need that medication because taking it closer to the event where you are unprotected is going to be the most effective form. There's debate about Plan B if you need two doses, if you're over 75 kilograms, that's not been proven in a study, although some people do support it that if you're over a weight threshold, you might consider taking more. Okay, so one thing we have to think about when it comes to living in this post-Roe world is contraception and access to emergency contraception and long-acting contraception. All of these things could be at risk if some of these other decisions are reversed. And even in the setting of certain states feeling like some forms of these contraception, even though they do not, some politicians feel like they are abortifacients, meaning causing an abortion, like an IUD. That's the big argument. And that's not true at all. However, we could see some misguided politicians using that to try to make certain forms of contraception or emergency contraception unavailable in their states because they believe that it violates their own religious or ethical principles. So make sure that you have a plan for contraception. When you use our code A-A-W, that's a savings of $15. This code is only available to our listeners. To get started, just go to apostrophe.com slash A-A-W and click get started. Then use the code A-A-W at sign up and you'll get your first visit for only $5. Thank you, Apostrophe, for sponsoring this episode. And now a word from one of our sponsors, Quince. The weather's getting warmer, so it's time to say goodbye to jackets and sweaters and hello to shorts and tees. Thank you, Quince. Let's talk about abortion for a minute. So one thing to understand is that there are safe ways to have an abortion. Abortion, when it was illegal, used to be extremely unsafe. And many people died, not from the procedure itself, but from trying to self-induce abortions because it was illegal. One thing we are fearful of in the current environment is that if somebody gets pregnant and they don't want to be pregnant, that they will be fearful to seek medical care, if they potentially try to incite an abortion. Medical abortion is actually very safe. So the medications use mesoprostol and These medications have been well studied for safe medical abortion. You can get these medications online or from a doctor and I highly recommend you try to get some so you have them in case you find yourself in an emergency if you potentially live in a state where abortion could become illegal. Now, a few things about this. You can look at Dr. Jennifer Lincoln's site online, threeforfreedom.com. She's done an amazing job with online access to contraception, emergency contraception, and to medical abortion pills. Now, if you try to have a medical abortion and you live in a state where a medical abortion is illegal, please still seek medical care if an emergency arises. We are fearful that people will be too afraid to go to the hospital and will have complications of a medical abortion or any miscarriage, any loss, and they won't seek medical care. So things that could happen regardless of if you're miscarrying or you're having an abortion after medical abortion pills is that you could have strong, heavy bleeding. You can bleed so much that you could need a blood transfusion. You could pass out. You might need IV fluids. You might need a surgical procedure to get out the remaining products of conception that are causing the bleeding. This happens in miscarriages. It's called an incomplete miscarriage. Even in a missed miscarriage, some patients are prescribed mesoprostol to try to get the uterus to contract and expel all of those products of conception. So when you go and you take mesoprostol and mifepristone or you take whatever pills for a medical abortion, and you have heavy bleeding, It's normal that it's going to be heavy. Yes, you're miscarrying. But if it starts to become so heavy, you start to feel lightheaded or dizzy, short of breath, you pass out, or you're concerned that you're losing too much blood, please go to a hospital and seek medical attention. You do not have to tell them that you took medical abortion pills. I know, but you don't. There's no blood test for those. There's no way for them to know. All you need to say is, I am pregnant and I am bleeding. And I'm going to say that one more time because it can be very dangerous. If you're bleeding out at home, you could die. If you're having heavy bleeding, I do not care if it is induced or if it is from a miscarriage. Please go to the hospital and tell them you are pregnant and you're having heavy bleeding. Also, please do not take anything, herbs, weird concoctions from other countries to try to have an abortion. Some of those things can be extremely dangerous. They can cause liver toxicity, blood coagulation problems. They can be really dangerous. Those are not safe ways to have an abortion. And we are afraid that some people will try to turn to those because they'll be more accessible. And then we'll see more complications than we would normally need from just a medical abortion procedure. Also, please don't perform any procedures on yourself. Induce any type of trauma to your body, to your cervix to your uterus in an attempt to end a pregnancy, okay? Another thing that can happen from any miscarriage from any pregnancy is you can get an infection. So if there's any piece of, you know, fragment left behind, that actually could be a source of an infection. And so if you start to get fever, a really tender uterus, foul-smelling discharge, and you know you were pregnant, you bled some, you thought you resolved it all, but maybe you didn't, you need to go seek medical care. Same thing. I was pregnant and miscarrying. I was pregnant and lost the pregnancy. Nobody needs to know if you took something or you traveled to another state to try to have an abortion. You you don't have to tell them that. You just need to get medical care in the emergent situation. I don't want people fearful to seek medical care in life-threatening situations, post-abortion treatment or miscarriage treatment or any loss. And then they're afraid and they have a serious complication or potentially lose their life because they did not seek medical care. So again, we cannot tell if you've taken these medications. You do not have to disclose it, but please seek medical care saying that you're pregnant and you're bleeding or that you thought you were miscarrying and now you have an infection. And please do not take any other treatments, herbs or whatever to try to self-induce an abortion in any way. I'm a believer that your personal rights include you deciding what is right for you in some of these situations. Abortion can simply be you're pregnant at a time in your life where you do not want to. That may be just because of circumstance. It may be due to rape or incest. It may be due to a bad relationship or domestic violence. It may be due to fetal anomalies, genetic diseases. You might desperately want to be pregnant, but know that the most compassionate thing for your child is not to force it to be born into a life full of pain. You might need an abortion to save your own life. You might develop a molar pregnancy that causes thyroid storm, hypertensive crisis, or stroke. Your body may rupture your bag of water before viability, and staying pregnant may only increase the infective risk to yourself while the baby's going to die no matter what. There are severe complications of pregnancy. Pregnancy alone is not a health-neutral state, and so many things can go wrong in the development Of a fetus. And it's really such a sensitive process. And there's so many circumstances that you and I would never want to find ourselves in, that people every day in this country find themselves in. And there's so many different circumstances that the law cannot accommodate them all, especially when we're highly restrictive. And what you may do, and what I may do, and what she may do, and what he may do may all be different. And that's what the law should permit. Medical decisions should be made between doctors and patients because some of these are life or death decisions. And some of these have severe implications on your ability to carry another baby later or to live and go home to the children you have at home. Do I believe that abortion is an essential part of health care? I do. Do I believe that in order to take care of somebody with a uterus, you need to be able to provide a way to end a pregnancy for a variety of different reasons and circumstances? I do. I was trained that way. I've seen people be saved by ending a pregnancy. I've seen people cry and sob and I've seen it be devastating. But I've seen that save the life of a mother more times than I can count. And I think it's important that in some of these states that have a life of the mother exclusion, it's not really as simple as it sounds. Let's use Missouri right now. We are hearing that people are presenting to the emergency room with a baby with a heartbeat in the fallopian tube, an ectopic pregnancy. And what is happening is they are bleeding. The tube is starting to rupture. They are bleeding internally, but they are stable. They're stable. They're not immediately going to die. But what do we know? That's a completely unviable pregnancy, that the only way to save that mom's life is to remove that pregnancy with a heartbeat from the mom. That of itself is an abortion. We're ending the life of the pregnancy in order to save mom. And the only outcome is for that fallopian tube to rupture and mom to bleed. It's not going to resolve. And even at that circumstance, methotrexate or other medical options you sometimes have for ectopic pregnancy is not going to be an option. However, these doctors Are waiting, they're consulting with legal teams, care is being delayed. And what is happening is they're waiting to document that the patient becomes unstable. They are purposefully watching people get sick, bleed out inside. It's a huge deal to undergo surgery emergently to get a tube removed in the setting of an ectopic pregnancy. Now we're forcing people to have a belly full of blood, become hemodynamically unstable. That means your blood stops going to some of your non-vital organs so it can perfuse your brain and parts of your body that are vital. That can lead to severe kidney injury, kidney failure. It can have tons of complications and makes the recovery much more difficult. And some of these people are going to need blood transfusions where with earlier intervention they would not have. And somebody very well may die. This is an ectopic pregnancy. This is a completely non-viable pregnancy. Not going to make it into a living child. And yet the mother's life is still being put at risk by these current laws right now in some states. And then I've talked about it before, but when I was a fellow, I had a case of a twin molar pregnancy. This was a patient who very much desired to be pregnant. I was the attending of the day. She had a viable 14 week fetus in one of the pregnancies. And then the other one, she had a molar pregnancy that was causing her body to be very sick. A molar pregnancy is essentially an abnormal chromosomal complement that causes extreme growth of the placental cells and they start to make abnormal amounts of hormones. They can cause hypertensive crisis, which can cause you to stroke out. Her blood pressure was through the charts. She was at risk of that. It can make you vascularly unstable and it can also cause something called thyroid storm. So her thyroid hormone was going crazy and she was at risk of urgently immediately dying. And we had to take her and do an abortion. We had to do a, a DNC procedure of that molar pregnancy. We had to take the fetus out. And it was terrible. And it was sad. And it was something I'll never forget. And yet it was the only option this woman had to survive. The situation itself was terrible enough. But luckily, I didn't have to go get a lawyer, talk before them, wait until she possibly had a life-threatening outcome. We were able to clearly say, this is what it is. This circumstance is incompatible with life. And now we know what we need to do and how we need to intervene. And we're going to go and do this surgery. And it's sad, but you are going to recover from this. That was a medical decision made between the medical team and the patient. It was devastating and sad, but there was no legal or political involvement. And that's important. That's so important. Because what's going to happen is in the setting of uncertainty, people aren't going to get the care they need. We've already seen that in Texas with SBA pharmacists declining to fill methotrexate or mesoprostol because those medications can be used to end a pregnancy, even though they're clearly allowed in certain circumstances. Uncertainty leads to delay. Delay can lead to death. It can lead to poor medical outcomes. Medicine is not something where you can always go, check to see what everybody agrees upon. Sometimes you do have to urgently act to save somebody. And obstetrics is a really dangerous field. There is a lot of death. Our country already has a very high maternal mortality rate. And we're going to see that increase even more since Roe has been overturned. And now a word for one of our sponsors, Ritual. Did you know that women were excluded from clinical research policy by federal law until 1993? But women belong in scientific research. They're essential and Ritual knows this. I choose Ritual Multivitamin every day because it is easy to take and I know that I am getting high quality and traceable ingredients in a clean and bioavailable forms. Start Ritual or add Essential for Women 18 Plus to your subscription today. That's ritual.com slash AAW for 25% off. Thank you, Ritual. Another thing we're worried about on a state level is that abortion bills, now that it's been turned back to the state, many states are going to try to put very tight parameters so that abortion is completely prohibited. And many of these are defining terms medical terms and legal documents like fertilization, conception, implantation, embryo, personhood, and they're defining what these mean. These terms carry a huge amount of actual meaning in the medical world. Just like an abortion is any pregnancy that does not make it to viability, any pregnancy loss that doesn't make it to viability is termed an abortion, whether it was therapeutic, elective, spontaneous, incomplete, Mist, ectopic, they're all the same. So, these other words like fertilization and defining an embryo as a person from the moment of fertilization can have implications for IVF. What we are worried about onefold is are we going to see, like some other countries have, where you have to limit the number of eggs fertilized and then transfer anything that's an embryo without doing genetic testing or being able to freeze it? And even though we do practice IVF that way sometimes, because that's what somebody feels like is the way that IVF makes sense to them and their own core sense of personal beliefs, it's not the most effective way to do IVF. It's not the safest way. It is not the most affordable way. That actually rolls IVF back so much. So many years rolls it back. And the reason why is that advances in stimulation, being able to retrieve multiple eggs at a time, being able to culture and grow embryos to a better stage, being able to freeze embryos so that if your first transfer is not successful, you can use those embryos, being able to genetically test embryos so that we're able to select the best one or to weed out genetic diseases that could be lethal or disabling. Those are really important factors for what makes IVF more successful than we have ever seen in the past. So, what this may do is mean that, in order to have a successful IVF in some of these states, you might have to do multiple cycles because you can't freeze or test embryos. That's going to cost more money and take more time. You're also going to see an efflux or people leading that state who practice IVF and embryologists. And a team is only as good as their lab is. So if the people who are in the lab don't feel like that's the appropriate way to practice and they leave to go to other states, We're going to see huge discrepancies in where in this country you can get appropriate and effective IVF care. That's scary to us. We're also anticipating seeing potentially some issues with embryo disposition. Right now, they're your embryos, yours to decide what to do with. I usually tell people to hold on to them until they're certain that under no circumstance in any way would they ever want to discard them, meaning you're old enough that you would never carry a baby even if the worst thing happens. And you could always discard them, donate them to research, donate them to another couple that's considered embryo donation. But what we're worried about is maybe you won't be able to discard them in certain states if something fertilized is a person. It's really gray. There's no precedent for this because row existed before IVF. IVF was able to come to light in a post row world. So this is all uncharted water for us. The other thing, so I'll use my state and I am in Texas. So in Texas... Regardless of what your legal document says, our trigger law says that in a dispute, embryos will go to the party who has the best interest of the embryo in mind. So let's pretend you and your partner make embryos. You get divorced. You no longer want to have babies together. That's what your contract says. Embryos to be discarded upon divorcing. However, your partner has a change of heart and they want to transfer the embryos. And so they want to give embryos a chance at life and you want to discard them, like your contract said. It is written in there that embryos will go to the party with the best interest of the embryo in mind. So in that circumstance, they would go to your partner. That's a very, very scary world for us when we talks about your embryos and your reproductive future and your reproductive rights. So I hope by listening to this, you're understanding that abortion is not just a one-sided issue protected abortion rights, but also protected appropriate management of early non-viable pregnancy, appropriate access to contraception and emergency contraception, appropriate and effective and safe access to IVF and reproductive technology, and your rights to your own embryos and your genetic material. The ability to determine when you want to have a child and to be able to determine what you want or not want to do with your body is an essential right for human rights. And seeing Roe v. Wade overturned is really setting us as a society back so many years. And as a mom to an eight-year-old daughter, I'm really fearful that the world she grows up in will look so much different than the one I did. And some freedoms and rights that I had that I took for granted, and I assumed they were inherent rights. And they gave me this ability to dream really big and not worry about certain consequences because I was taking care of them. I was being smart. I was using contraception. I'm worried that the world will look different and that choices will be limited and that the ability to plan for a really amazing future will feel like something she does not have control over in the current political environment. I think for too long, women have wanted to stay out of politics because it's difficult and it's yucky and it feels uncontrollable. We are seeing so many races, especially at state level, won or lost by A 1,000 votes. That's such a small number. I really think it's time for all people to get political, all women to care. I think that it's time for you to research these issues. And if you're going to be a single issue voter, be it on this. Women currently do not have equal rights in this country. And we are going to see more personal rights taken away, specifically those for contraception and for same-sex marriage. Those are highly at stake. They've been clearly outlined. And if we don't stand up, if we don't share our stories so that people know that abortion's not just something uncomfortable to talk about, but that abortion, IVF, contraception, and pregnancy loss are things that happen to real people, that's very important. So what can you do? You can share your story. You can vote. You can talk about why these issues are important to you. You can ask hard questions of your family and your friends. You can share what you've been through, and you can ask others what they've been through. You can support politicians in your area. You can support their campaigns. You can give money or you can call for them or send email. Some tasks are really little and not that hard. You can go on marches and show up with other people. You can share social media posts, amplify other people's stories if you don't feel like you can share your own. All of the above are okay, but it's really time for us to band together and to do something. And I'm just honored to have this platform and this voice at this moment. While we're living in such a hard world, I know that many of my patients have had concerns and questions. And it's really tough to be their doctor and not know all the answers because it's true. I've not lived through this before. This really is a time that we're all navigating together. I promise you, your OBGYNs, your fertility doctors, we're working really hard behind the scenes. We're working on creating advocacy groups. We're starting political action committees, y'all. What is that? And I really hope that you support our endeavors as we now feel like in order to be physicians in this age, we also have to learn to be political advocates. All right, friends, well, let's answer just a few questions for FFS. For fertility's sake, this is a Q&A that we do every single week. These questions will be answered. They are from Mondays on my Instagram at Natalie Crawford MD. There'll be a question box where you can ask your questions. Some I will answer right on Instagram and others we will answer each week here on the podcast. So let's get to a few of your questions now. I think my husband feels defeated. I'm losing faith. We're both 35 and trying for three years. This is such a hard thing, and I know how fertility feels. One thing I should say is definitely, if you've been trying for three years, please, please, please see a fertility doctor. It is beyond time for a fertility workup. So if you have not, you definitely need to get clued in to try to figure out what's going on. Also, being 35 does feel older, and I know it's this big marker in our brain about advanced maternal age and geriatric pregnancy and all these terrible words they throw at us. But really 35 is still a young age in the fertility world and you still have a great chance of conceiving, but you must know what is going on. If you have all your testing done and it's normal, this is considered unexplained infertility and your odds of conceiving naturally are extremely low. They're not zero, but they're low. And so strong consideration of reproductive assistance, whether it's with ovulation induction and IUI or IVF, but you need somebody to counsel you on unexplained infertility. If you've had all the fertility testing, are you ovulating? How is your egg count? How are your fallopian tubes in uterus? What is the semen analysis? And you need to be counseled the best, sending you love. All right, next question is What is a question you should ask a fertility doctor when getting a second opinion? So when you get a second opinion, Sometimes it's easier for the fertility doctor because they get to Monday morning quarterback. I have your records. I see how you've responded in the past. I always think it's appropriate when people ask, is that what you would have done? Do you agree with that plan from the beginning? Now that you have this information, what would you want to do next? What advice do you give me for things that I can control outside the cycle? Do you have opinions about if this is worth still going forward? I think those are great starting questions. 100,000% do not go to a second opinion without making sure that your fertility doctor has all the records from where you've been seen before and all the treatment that you've done because that's what the second opinion is about. Your interpretation of the cycle is just not the same as what's in the medical record and some of those details that we really need to know. So really make sure you get your actual medical record first. What supplements should you take for egg quality? Okay, this question is asked a thousand times and I understand it and I love it. I love talking about natural fertility or lifestyle factors and things you can do to try to improve your fertility. That's my jam. However, it's not a one size fit all. So there are general principles, but you really do need somebody personalizing that plan for you. But overall, everybody should be taking a prenatal vitamin that has folic acid in it. You need to be taking some omega-3 fatty acids That may be in a prenatal or that may be separate. Those are things like DHA and EPA, like a fish oil or an algae-based pill. And I put everybody on vitamin D, at least 1,000 IUs of vitamin D. And I put anybody with infertility on CoQ10. And I think that's kind of like the bread and butter basics that nobody's going to be harmed from. Now, depending on your circumstance, you might benefit from antioxidants like vitamin C, vitamin E, and N-acetylcysteine. You might benefit from melatonin, myoinositol. Those are other things that I sometimes use depending on the circumstance. And sometimes I use DHEA, which is an androgen. So depending on if you have endometriosis or autoimmune disease or PCOS or low ovarian reserve, I put those factors together when I'm trying to decide what supplements I think could benefit you the most. 100% do not take all of the ones I just listed. You do not have all of those medical diseases. And so some of them are for very different circumstances. So I think some basic prenatal, omega-3s, vitamin D, CoQ10, that's kind of good for everybody. You're not going to go wrong there. However, the other things are more specific and you really need to talk to your doctor or somebody who can give you the appropriate personalized approach for you and what you need to be on. Okay, and the last question is, cause of a low egg number at retrieval when the follicle count is normal? This can be for a few different reasons. So to break it down, if we think about a normal follicle count, what we're thinking about is every month, a group of eggs is released from that vault inside the ovary and from that group, one of the eggs ovulate and the rest of them die. And when we do IVF, our goal is to get the whole group of eggs to grow into the same mature range at the same time and retrieve those and get your eggs. Sometimes we get a low egg number because we didn't fulfill the primary objective. You had a really large dichotomous range. So some of the eggs were post-mature and degenerating or they were too immature. And so you didn't really end up with a synchronous cohort. Sometimes you could have a failed response or a poor response to the trigger shot. Maybe you needed a little bit less time or more time. Sometimes we see patients who have already started to ovulate. And sometimes we see patients who aren't fully mature. So it's another Personalized process that we can usually approve upon in the next cycle. Sometimes we have empty follicles or cysts. They looked and sounded and appeared to be follicles throughout the cycle, but they really ended up being cysts that did not harbor a follicle inside. And sometimes people even have something called empty follicle syndrome. And this is where they really don't have eggs inside those follicles, but that's super rare. For the most part, I always think about if you get a low number of retrieval compared to what we were counting or what we were expecting is there's probably something about the protocol that needs to be tweaked. So I don't usually view that as it's never going to work for you or you're never going to get it, but probably like, oh, something about this protocol wasn't exactly perfect to get the highest number of mature eggs possible. And that's when I like to go and have that WTF appointment with my patients, say, hey, what happened? What can we change? And come up with a game plan to get something different the next time. Hope you enjoyed the answers to these questions. As a reminder for FFS, you can ask these every week on Instagram at Natalie Crawford MD, and then stay tuned for answers each week here. Thanks, friends. Thank you all for listening to As a Woman. It would mean so much if you could rate, review, and follow the podcast to be notified of new episodes every Sunday. I hope you learned something new, and I hope you share it with someone in your life. Be sure to follow along on Instagram at Natalie Crawford MD. And check out the YouTube channel Natalie Crawford MD. If you're interested in becoming a patient, you can also follow Fora Fertility. I'm so thrilled to have you here, part of the community that amplifies others as a woman. Hey guys, welcome to the collective. I'm Brianne Helfrich, a 26-year-old bioethics PhD student and clothing brand CEO. Welcome to my podcast, where we talk all things health and wellness, navigating your 20s, and becoming the best version of yourself. So sit down, play that episode, and join the collective.